It's quite an interesting text, to say the least. Because when you read it, according to Jesus here, there is a sin that is so wicked, that is so heinous, that is so awful, that it can never and will never be forgiven. And the idea that such a sin might exist has throughout the centuries haunted and tormented and racked the hearts of good Christians. And it continues to do so even up to our very own day. We tend to call this sin that is being discussed here the unforgivable sin. Some of your Bibles might even have that as the title to this section of the text. Or we would call it the unpardonable sin. And this is one of those subjects that I've been asked about a number of times over the years. And the three most frequently asked questions about this subject are these. What is it? Can it still be committed today? And how can I know if I've committed the unforgivable or unpardonable sin? These are three questions that we'll try to answer for you this morning. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning or you're watching online and you've never actually heard of this before. Unforgivable sin, unpardonable sin. What are we talking about here? The idea comes from the statement Jesus makes in verse 31 and 32. Look at it. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a sin that will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. You see that, right? Mark's gospel actually says it like this in verse 329, chapter 3, verse 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? Sounds like we should actually figure out what this is and understand it. So what is it? Well, a number of suggestions have been put forward. Some have wondered if it refers to their pre-Christian blasphemies. You know, the days before you came to Jesus, when you took the Lord's name in vain like nobody's business, without any care, without any concern. But do such sins that you've committed in your former life exclude you from coming to Jesus in faith? Do they exclude you from salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? The answer to that is a clear and definitive no. No, they do not. God is faithful to forgive any and all who call out to him. God is faithful to forgive any who believe in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so some have wondered, does this unforgivable sin refer to my Christian life where I am consistently returning to that same trough of sin. There is that sin in my life that I just can't seem to defeat, and I keep going back to it over and over and over and over again. My continual failure to measure up to the upstanding life of obedience that I know is called for from me, but I can never seem to get to. That trough of sin that you return to, that you desperately want to get rid of. And on the one hand, you hate it. You want it gone. And on the other hand, you love it enough to keep returning to it. You feel like the fool who's spoken of in the proverb, like a dog returns to its vomit, is, so is a fool who repeats his folly. 
We fully understand, right, the internal anguish of the Apostle Paul who spoke about this very thing when he wrote these words that seemingly describe each and every one of us. In Romans 7, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want to do is what I keep doing. Is this the unforgivable sin? And again, the answer is a clear and definitive no. No, it is not. Hear the words of the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some have said, it's the denial of Jesus. What if I deny Jesus under great persecution and great torment? Right? You remember Jesus, what he said in Matthew chapter 10, 22 and 23. <clears throat> oh, maybe not 10.22. What did I write here? Oh, 32. 10.32 and 33. When he said, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And there was actually quite a stir about this specific subject in the early church when Emperor Diocletian of the Roman Empire, brought about a tremendously terrible, tremendously difficult persecution upon the church. And Christians were being killed and slaughtered all over. They were being told to hand in their Bibles, to burn the Word of God. And a number of these believers did. And the church thought this, some in the church thought this constituted the unforgivable sin and never wanted them to be re-included back into the church. It's called the Donatist Controversy. You can look it up if you want to read it. But Augustine, the great theologian, fought for these people who they called lapsers to be incorporated back into the church because the truth of the matter is this. If we, are, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What if I mistake? What if I make a mistake? Some have said, what if I make a mistake and I say something negative about the Holy Spirit? Or what if I accidentally attribute something that the Holy Spirit is doing to evil, to, to something evil? Do these constitute the unforgivable sin? The answer to, to those, as we will see, is also no. And a number of theologians and authors have debated and wrangled about this quandary. They've given their ideas and opinions. Some have actually put forward a sin, a specific sin, as the unforgivable sin. Some have said murder. Some have said adultery. Why? Because in Leviticus 24, verse 17, we read this. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. So you see that, right? The idea here is that the text, this text is crystal clear. You murder someone, there is no forgiveness for you, but you are ushered up to, out to your own execution. So would that not therefore constitute an unforgivable sin if there is no chance or opportunity for grace there? The problem with that idea, however, is the numerous examples throughout Scripture of murder actually being forgiven by God. The greatest example being that of the wicked men who crucified Jesus. After his resurrection, Jesus commissioned the disciples for mission, and he said this to them in Luke 24. Go and preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
Should be, this should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, and listen to this, beginning from Jerusalem. That's a key line, beginning from Jerusalem. Why? Why begin from Jerusalem? Do you know who you're proclaiming the gospel to when you begin from Jerusalem? You are proclaiming the good news to those who contributed to the execution and crucifixion of Christ. Peter and John, they went into Jerusalem and in the power of the Holy Spirit, they proclaimed the gospel to those that had Jesus crucified. They even said, you crucified him. And guess what? Those who played a part in that most reprehensible crime responded. Many of them responded to the preaching of Peter and John and thousands repented of their sin on that day. They turned from it and they came to Jesus in faith and they experienced the forgiveness and the salvation that is so richly and freely offered to any sinner anywhere at all times right now. You see, there's been a number of attempts to explain what this means. And while indeed there is some eternal sin, there is a sin so terrible that it cannot and it will not be forgiven, it is not the falling into or the committing of some specific sin. No, any sin, no matter what that sin is, whether it's adultery, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you get a list, whether it's adultery, murder, lying, cheating, stealing, fornication, homosexuality, slander, gossip, lust, idolatry, and you can continue down the line, no matter what it is, each and every one of these sins can and will be forgiven for those who call out to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and trust. Otherwise, how could this idea of an unforgivable sin line up with everything that we know about God as he's revealed himself in Scripture? Hopefully, you have been told the greatest news in the world. That our God, the one true God, the God who does truly exist, is abundantly gracious. He is marvelously merciful. He is spectacularly faithful to forgive all who confess their sins to Him. Hopefully, you, yourself, have been confronted by this God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The God who can and does indeed forgive anyone who confesses their sin to Him. Anyone who truly calls out to faith, out in faith to Jesus Christ, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done. Given. All who are confident in the facts about Christ, that He is God come to us in the flesh, that He lived a perfect, sinless life and by so doing secured the perfect righteousness that God requires of all who would be acceptable to Him. A righteousness that Jesus, when you call out to Him, clothes you with so that when God looks at you, He sees that perfect, righteous life of Christ. Hopefully you've come to embrace that beautiful truth. Hopefully you are confident that Jesus died a sin-bearing death in your place, that he took upon himself the penalty for your sin, that he drank the cup of God's wrath right down to the last drop so none of it would fall upon you. Hopefully you are confident in the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead three days later, proving the acceptability of the sacrifice. Hopefully you are confident in the fact that He ascended to heaven where He now sits at the right hand of God the Father, interceding and mediating for you right now. Just read God's Word. 
Open it up and read it and you will see the grace of God on every single page. You will see the immeasurable mercy of God held out to you and dispensed upon us who believe at every turn. God has and continues to forgive His children of an incalculable amount of sin. And not just what you and I might consider little sins, but big sins, wicked sins. You go back to King David. God forgave him of adultery and murder and betrayal. God forgave that blasphemer, that chief of sinners, Saul, and then put, brought him into the position of being the apostle to the Gentiles. God forgave Peter after Peter went so far as to invoke curses upon himself in denying that he even knew Christ. And as you look at the ministry of Jesus, you see him repeatedly holding out grace and holding out mercy and holding out forgiveness to tax collectors. Tax collectors who would at this point in time be considered by their own countrymen the dregs of society. Cheats, liars, traitors to Israel. And Jesus called one of them, Matthew, to become one of his disciples. And it's that tax collector, Matthew, who wrote the gospel that we are studying 2,000 years later. Jesus held out grace and mercy to prostitutes throughout Israel, sinners of all types. Scripture is clear. The grace of our Lord is bountiful. The grace of our Lord is overflowing. John describes it like this in one, chapter 1, verse 16 of his gospel. From his fullness we have received grace upon grace. John pictures grace like the waves that hit the shoreline and never stop. So know this. There is no sin that will not be forgiven if you truly turn to Jesus Christ in faith. And if that's the case then, the question must be asked, so then what is the sin that Jesus is speaking about here? Well, context, as always, context is king, right? So to more fully understand, to, f to more form a form a more complete and accurate picture of the sin that Jesus is referring to here, let's explore the situation and the circumstances into which he spoke these words. Contextually, we are in Matthew 12, a whole unit, and Jesus had just recently withdrawn from a rather tense standoff with the Pharisees over the nature of the Sabbath. And in this Exchange, Jesus revealed the absolute and total hypocrisy of these Pharisees who created a load of rules and a ton of traditions and put them on other people, judging them for their failures to keep them and puffing themselves up. They created a whole system of rules that inflamed their own pride and created in them this external veneer of holiness so that when someone in Israel said, who's the holy man in Israel? They would look at the Pharisees. But the Pharisees had really just rigged the deck. They created a system of rules that they could follow or they could justify themselves when they didn't follow it, and then they would judge everybody else. These rules, as no rules do, did not, they did not change the hearts of anybody who followed them. And so here comes Jesus, and he contradicted the Pharisees' traditions and man-made rules. He spoke against them. He was in opposition to those teachings, and he said to them in Matthew 12, verse 12, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You see, the Pharisees said, you can't really do anything on the Sabbath, not even good. And Jesus contradicted them. 
And after saying this, Jesus told a man who was in the synagogue on that day, a man with a paralyzed hand, to stretch out his hand. And verse 13 of chapter 12 tells us that the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. Now, how would you think the Pharisees would respond to such a miraculous, wonderful, gracious, merciful miracle? The text tells us in verse 14 that the Pharisees, seething with a fiery rage, went out and conspired among themselves. In the other Gospels, it tells us they even went so far as to include their hated enemies, the Herodians, in their hatching and plotting as to how they might destroy, how they might kill Jesus. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, withdrew from there, and all the crowds followed him. They've never seen a man like this before. And so they all followed him, and Jesus healed them all. You see that, right, in the text? He healed them all. In verse 15, he withdrew from there, many followed him, and he healed them all. What grace, what mercy. And this withdrawal from the heated situation with the, ter- with the Pharisees, according to Matthew, was a fulfillment of the prophetic words that Isaiah had spoken about Messiah over 800 years ago. That's what the next few verses there in 12 are, verses 18 to 21. And this is the issue, right? These Pharisees, they were no dummies. These were smart men. These were the intellectuals of their day who spent all their time pouring over and learning and teaching the scriptures to the people. These are the ones who spent long hours debating every nook and cranny of the text. These are the ones, they understood the general contours of messianic prophecy. And on this occasion, a demon-possessed man or a demon-oppressed man is brought to Jesus. And once again, when Jesus heals him, he puts his messianic credentials, his messianic identity out there in the clearest possible way for the Pharisees and the crowds to see. Look at verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. See, these Pharisees knew, they knew that Scripture prophesied a Messiah who would return sight to the blind. And if you recall, sight to the blind, recovery of sight to the blind, is a miracle that the Old Testament made specific to Messiah. Nobody else had ever returned sight to the blind. That was nothing. The only person who would do that is Messiah himself. And we see Jesus doing it over and over and over. It's the clearest identifying mark of Messiah's identity. And this is why in John 9, the Pharisees, when they heard the report of the man who was born blind being healed by Jesus, they went to great lengths to investigate and try to debunk it. They knew exactly what this meant. And they met with the man who had been healed, and they heard this truth from the lips of that man in John 9, 31 to 33. He said, We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could not do anything. Or if he was not from God, he could do nothing. This man is correct. 
But the Pharisees in our text this morning, blinded by rage, blinded by pride, refused, even in the face of the clear, clearest of evidence. I mean, the man is standing right in front of them, healed, right? In the face of the clearest evidence, they refused to even consider the possibility that Jesus is Messiah. Instead, they looked at this man who was standing in front of them, healed from blindness, having his sight returned to him, and they said to the man, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. They would not listen to the truth. They knew, the Pharisees knew that Messiah would restore sight to the blind and refused to believe it even when it occurred right before their very own eyes. They knew that when Messiah came, the lame would walk, the lepers would be cleansed, the deaf would hear, the mute would sing for joy, the dead would be raised to life. And these are things that Jesus did almost every single day of his earthly ministry. And yet the Pharisees willfully rejected him. In the face of incontrovertible and insurmountable evidence as to the identity of the man standing there before them, they willfully and deliberately refused to see him. And on this day, once again, as the demon-oppressed man, who was also blind and mute, was brought to him, Jesus healed the man. Messianic credentials once again put on display for everyone to see. The demon is driven away, and the man now also spoke and saw. Matthew, do you notice, right? He simply spends, he only spends one verse on the actual miracle itself. Because as far as Christ's powerful works go, this is simply another display of his authority over both the spiritual realms, in that the demonic must leave when Jesus speaks the word, and the physical realm because the man's physical faculties of sight and speech are returned to him by the word of Jesus. Now, let's imagine that's you. This man is just healed. You see sight restored to a blind man right in front of you, and you know this man has been born blind. This man can't speak, and his vocal faculties are restored to him right in front of you. How would you respond? Matthew records two responses, one from the crowds, one from the Pharisees. First, take a look at the crowds in verse 23. All the people were amazed. See that? All the people were amazed. The word translated amazed here means they were astounded. They were astonished. If I could put it in modern parlance or modern, modern speech, their minds were blown. They were floored by what they had just witnessed. And this led to them wondering, could this be the son of David? Could this man right here be the son of David? You see, it seems like these crowds were also quite familiar with the prophecies of Messiah. And so while not actually applying the title to Jesus, they're still a little too hesitant to do that, while still not fully convinced, they were at least beginning to consider the possibility that this Jesus is Messiah. Could this be the son of David? 
Could this be Messiah? Is this man the rightful king of Israel? Is this man our royal authority? Could this be the one who God has sent to help the downtrodden Israelites? Is this man the one who will restore the kingdom to Israel? Could this be the one who inherits all the promises that God has made to King David? The one who brings the rule of God to bear in Israel? Everything the crowds had just witnessed led them to this probing question about the identity of the man standing before them. However, when the Pharisees heard the crowds connecting the name of Jesus with the title Son of David, it drove them to such a fury that instead of pondering with the crowds, they worked in the crowds to discredit to slander and to malign Jesus among the people. You see their slanderous response in contrast to the crowds in verse 24. Look at it. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The Pharisees are enraged by the positive reception that Jesus is receiving from the crowds. They feel threatened that the crowds are considering that this man might be their king. Now I want you to consider for a moment what this says about the heart of the Pharisee here on this day. It seems that they really did know who Jesus was. The conclusion was inescapable. They couldn't deny that Jesus worked mighty miracles. They couldn't refute his preaching and his teaching. They also knew that it's only by the power of God himself that demons might be driven from anyone. But they were so hardened in their envy, so hardened in their jealousy and in their murderous rage that they would rather, when confronted by the great works of God, attribute the works of the Spirit of God in and through Jesus to the devil himself. What hardness of heart. What wickedness and deceit. What a determined and willful opposition. And not all, they didn't end there either. They took it a step further. They attempted to delude the crowds as well, other people, into believing that Jesus was in league with Satan. That he was an agent of Satan. Now I want you to notice something. Notice that they do not ever deny that Jesus performed these miracles. Nor did Jewish rabbis from up into the next few centuries. They all knew. They all recorded it. It was well documented that Jesus worked mighty miracles. They were open. They were obvious. They were frequent. They were well attested. But their tactic was then, because they couldn't deny that they had taken place, the tactic they chose was to attribute those works to the demonic realm. It is to these Pharisees, hardened as they were, to the clear testimony of Jesus, these Pharisees who deliberately and willfully in the face of clearer proof than you or I have ever seen, it is these Pharisees who reject the plain, open preaching from the lips of Jesus himself and attribute, the works, the, and attribute his works to the devil when they know that Jesus himself is a man come from the Lord. They know it. They might be saying, well, how do you know that they know it? Good question. Remember Nicodemus, a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. 
In John 3, it's recorded that he came to Jesus one night. And he said this to Jesus on that night. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Who are the we? The religious leaders. They knew. Maybe they didn't know that he was Messiah, but they knew that this was a man come from God. And even more, and even so, even though they knew that to be true, here they are blaspheming against God by knowingly, deliberately, willfully, and clearly labeling the works of God the Spirit to the devil himself. So Jesus responded to their accusation in in the next verses. And he warned them about continuing down this path that they were on. And Jesus responds first here with an argument to common sense. Look at verses 25 and 26. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? You can look throughout human history and see this very thing to be true. Divided kingdoms... Divided cities, divided households, they fall. This is simple historical fact. Division lays waste to any group and brings about the downfall of those divided. Division is a devastating reality for any group, family, city, or house that it infects. Throughout human history, Division has halted and destroyed pretty much every movement. You see, generally, movements begin with unified goals, right? They say, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna, we want to we wanna, uh, reach the world with this idea. And they're unified. They have a unified vision. And during these early periods, when everybody is together, everybody is unified, there is a momentum that is gained. And eventually, the enemy works in that momentum, if it's a Christian thing, to weaken it by bringing division into the ranks. And once division hits the ranks, the once seemingly unstoppable momentum of a unified group is cut short. History is full of such occurrences. I'll give a biblical example. That would be Israel itself. Under the the reign of King Solomon, Israel lived what can only be characterized as a golden age. They had peace and prosperity on all sides. The text tells us that silver was like the the rocks on the ground. Their unity as a nation under the Lord led to increasing wealth, increasing peace on all their borders. And all of that, however, came to a halt when the kingdom passed from Solomon into the hands of his son Rehoboam. As the nation stood before Rehoboam to pledge their allegiance, they made a request to Rehoboam. Please lighten the workload that we faced under your father Solomon. So Rehoboam went and took counsel with the old men, the wise men, in the, the ones who had worked and stood and advised King Solomon. And he asked this question, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. 
But Rehoboam abandoned the counsel that the old wise men had given him and instead took the advice of the young men who had grown up with him. Can I just say that's always a big mistake? If you want advice, find good, wise elders, people who have lived life. Don't listen to the younger ones. The young here, their counsel split Israel in two. The young men here said, tell the people, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And on hearing this, the once powerful, unified nation of Israel fractured into two separate nations. Judah remaining faithful to Rehoboam, and the rest, almost all the rest, heading over to another man that they installed as king named Jeroboam. After this fracture, after this division, the nation became easy prey. Eventually, during Rehoboam's reign, Egypt attacked Judah and carried off all the gold and all the riches and everything that Solomon had accumulated during his reign. You know what could never have happened had Israel remained unified? Egypt would never have been able to accomplish such a feat. And history is full of such similarities. Greece fell when Alexander the Great didn't name a successor and all of the people started fighting internally for it. In the 700s, um, the Arab and Muslim invasions came into Europe and it was seeming, it was going pretty bad for us for a time, but then they divided and everything halted. It's just the same story over and over and over. Division led to the loss of peace and prosperity and eventually their country in Israel. Division weakens kingdoms, cities, and households. Divided kingdoms cannot withstand outside attacks. So if Satan were casting out Satan, that would mean he's divided against himself. However, Jesus is saying, as you can see, by all of the demonic activity around you, all of the rampant oppression around you, Satan's kingdom is still quite strong, quite vigorous. It is thriving. It didn't get this way by division in its own ranks. See, Jesus uses common sense to respond to the Pharisees, asking basically, do you really think Satan is so ignorant as to undermine himself? Demonic oppression, lying, killing, harming, these all further his goals. They further his intentions. Do you really think Satan wars against his own minions? He is too focused on inspiring war and division among the people of God. While Satan is indeed the father of lies and a liar from the beginning, his goals are clear and he is unrelentingly focused on them. You might go to sleep at night, but Satan never does. Satan is evil, but he's not dumb. He wouldn't send his soldiers to war with each other because if he did, how would his kingdom have gained such power and strength? The only power that can drive the demonic out of a person is the power of the Spirit of God. And so Jesus continues in verse 27, If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. You see, there were Jewish exorcists who went about trying to cast out demons from people as well. There's a story of them in Acts chapter 19, the sons of the high priest Sceva, his seven sons. These guys were total failures. 
Because when they tried to cast out a demon, the demon leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, took all their clothes, and sent them fleeing out of the place naked. But Jesus told them, your own sons, ask your own sons, meaning your own exorcists. Ask them, by whom do you cast out demons? Now, he's not saying that they actually are able to do so. We don't know if they were able to do so. But he says, let your own sons judge whether the accusation you're making against me is actually correct. And this is one, you know, Jesus is masterful at all of these exchanges, right? This is one of those things that Jesus does where it doesn't matter how the Pharisees answer because basically they condemn themselves in the answer. Whatever answer that the sons would give denounces the Pharisees. If the sons said, yeah, we cast out demons by demons, then the Pharisees have indeed been supporting demonic activity. But if the sons say, no, we don't drive out demons by demons, but by the power of God, then Jesus is vindicated. Even their own Jewish exorcists would have said to the Pharisees, no one drives out demons by Beelzebub. That's a foolish thing to say. It makes no sense. But if it's not by Satan, then who? The text tells us the Spirit of God. And if the Spirit of God is the power behind the works of Jesus during his earthly ministry, then Jesus tells us in verse 28 that the kingdom of God is at hand. Verse 28, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, the real source of Christ's power to cast out demons is the Spirit of God. By the Spirit, the demonic is driven out. By this same Spirit, the kingdom of God is exerting influence and gaining victory every single day over Satan's kingdom. The kingdom of God has come upon you, meaning it is now beginning its march against the the gates of Satan's kingdom. The forces of Christ are unstoppable. They are all powerful. They cannot be thwarted. They cannot be defeated. The battle has begun. The assault on Satan's domain has been initiated, and the gates of hell will ultimately be trampled down. This is no partnership between Jesus and Satan. This is the beginning, the inauguration of Satan's doom. And the spirit-empowered ministry of Christ is right before the Pharisees and the crowd's very own eyes, right at this moment, assaulting Satan's power to hold people captive. You see, Jesus in driving demons out of people by the Spirit's power is performing the act that they said that the Old Testament prophesied Messiah would do. He is setting the captives free. The kingdom of God has come upon you and it will win the victory. In verse 29, he continued, How can someone enter a strong man's house? And plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. The point here is Satan is strong. He is the strong man. But Jesus is infinitely stronger. Jesus has the power to bind Satan. Jesus has the power to drive Satan out. The crowds had just witnessed this fact in the healing of the demonic oppressed man. A man bound by Satan has now been set free by Jesus. And oh, the good news is that there are so many more liberations to come. Jesus is plundering Satan's domain. Jesus is depriving Satan of that which once belonged to him. And he is doing so by the Spirit. And guess what? 
When Jesus goes, he sends the Spirit on the apostles and they start marching and assaulting the, the, the kingdom of Satan. Then the apostles are gone and the Spirit comes upon all of us who believe and we are commissioned to go out into the world and preach the gospel and to teach people the, what, all that Christ has commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Meaning we are assaulting the kingdom of Satan. We proclaim the gospel to lost souls all over the world and in so doing... The Spirit sets the captives free. The power and authority of Christ so far exceeds that of Satan that the ministry and work of Jesus, the work of liberating people, the work of seeking and saving the lost went unhindered by Satan during his earthly ministry, during Jesus' earthly ministry. Why? Because Satan could do nothing to stop it. And in that sense, Satan was bound. However, Let's not be fooled, right? The text tells us that, that Satan is a strong man. Satan is still to you and I in this day a formidable enemy, not one to be toyed with or to be trifled with. He is still an enemy who prowls around seeking someone to devour. He is still seeking to steal and to kill and destroy. He is seeking to sift you like wheat, to be a thorn in your side. And while his power is limited, he is still dangerous. And that's why, as we, are com- as we obey the command of Jesus to go into the world and make disciples, the Apostle Paul tells us, when you do so, put on the armor of God. In all circumstances, Paul wrote, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the fiery darts of the evil one. And as James wrote, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So as you take up the shield, as you resist the devil in your ministry and obedience to Christ, do so knowing that there is coming a day when Satan will be fully bound His end is already marked out. He will be defeated. Revelation 20 verse 10 tells us that ultimately he will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are and they will all be tormented day and night forever. Hell is not where Satan reigns. Hell is where Satan is tormented. There is a war being waged. Christ has waged war against the domain of Satan. And he told the crowds next that neutrality in this war is impossible. In the war of kingdoms, in the war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, there are no Switzerlands. You are either with Christ or you are not. Jesus made this clear in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. These Pharisees who accused Jesus of being in league with Satan by virtue of their rejection are actually the ones who are a part of Satan's domain. The Pharisees, and get this, they are fighting against the very God they claim to love and serve. In being against the Lord with such deliberateness, They are working to advance Satan's domain, scattering and against the Lord. Fighting against the kingdom of God. 
And as we look at this text, there's a lesson for us here as well, right? There is no fence to straddle here. There is no middle ground. There is no balance to strike. Each and every one of us, along with the Pharisees, are working for one kingdom or the other. The one you are a part of. And the reality of the text is if you have not trusted in Christ, if you are not right now actively a child of Christ, by grace through faith in Christ, then you are at this moment a child of darkness. You are against Christ and you are scattering for the devil. There are only two kingdoms, Christ's and Satan's, and you are in one or the other. You are either in the domain of darkness or you have been ushered out of that domain and brought into the marvelous light of Christ. You are either a child of God by grace through faith in Christ or you are a child of the devil. These are the only two realities according to Jesus. There's no middle ground. There are no innocent, good people who don't believe. You might be able to make that argument if you're using the world's standard of good. Sure, there are probably good people by the world's standard. Treat people nice, help other people take out the garbage, pay their rent on time. Probably a lot of people like that. But when you weigh yourself or test yourself against the scales of God's perfect holy law, you are always found lacking. And so Jesus here sets down the gauntlet and he commands you, if you have not come to me, come to me. That might sound a little bit harsh, but the Apostle Paul said this very thing in Acts chapter 17. Jesus, or the Lord, commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. It is your duty this morning to hear and to respond to the command of Christ to repent and believe. And everyone who does so enters the kingdom of God and you work and gather with Christ and all who reject the call and command of Christ work and remain a part of the kingdom of the devil and scatter working against Jesus. So the question for you this morning is, which kingdom are you a part of? Have you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you entered into his kingdom? Or have you rejected him and so remain a child of the devil? Be sure, be sure about this. Jesus, in the clearest terms, reveals to the Pharisees here that they were a part of Satan's kingdom. But the Pharisees here, their refusal to believe is of a different quality. Like you might have questions. You might be rejecting Jesus because you have questions. I don't know. I need more information. But the Pharisees here, they knew Jesus to be a man of God. And so they were, as Dr. John MacArthur puts it, determined to reject Jesus against every evidence and argument. Seeing the truth incarnate, and then knowingly rejecting and condemning him. This is what Jesus refers to in verse 31 and 32 when he speaks of the unforgivable, unpardonable sin. Listen to it. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, and, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. The sin of these Pharisees right here is their willful hardness of heart. 
So hardened were their hearts that they were determined to reject, determined to malign, determined to trample upon any and all proofs of Christ's identity. They are committed to spurning Jesus even though they know, even though they can see that he is indeed a man sent by God. They've witnessed the works of the Spirit in the ministry of Jesus with their very own eyes. And they attributed those works to the devil. They heard the preaching and the teaching of Jesus from his very own lips. And yet again in John 8, 48, after hearing Jesus preach, they said the same thing. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? At every turn, they would rather explain Jesus away as demonic than attribute his works to Yahweh, who is the power behind them. They attribute the works of their very own God to the devil. They would rather attribute the works of their God to the devil than accept the facts. Jesus is Messiah. He is the Lamb of God that has come to take away the sins of the world. The Pharisees here have hardened themselves to the place that no pleading, no warning, no miracles, no preaching, no evidence will ever be listened to. They are on the road to death and they knowingly refuse to get off. The great John Broadus, Baptist pastor and president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in the 1800s, described whether the sin that we read about here can actually be committed today by a Christian. He wrote this, the conditions then, I quote, the conditions then under which this unpardonable sin of blasphemy against the Spirit of God is committed are, one, that there shall be a work manifestly supernatural, unmistakably the work of God and not of man, and two, that one shall in determined determined and malignant opposition insultingly ascribe to Satan this which he knows to be the work of God. Are these conditions ever fulfilled except in an age of miracles? Great question. Can someone actually commit the sin that the Pharisees had committed in this text? See, Broadus considers the Pharisees to be a very specific case. They are ones who witnessed with absolute clarity the works of Jesus, the proofs of his identity. It was all so irrefutably clear, and yet in the face of all of this evidence, the clearest evidence that anyone, anywhere, could ever have, the Pharisees didn't simply just walk away. They didn't simply just refuse to take counsel with the crowds as the crowds asked the question, could this be the son of David? No, they went and actively began slandering Jesus as a sorcerer or as somebody in league with the devil himself. You see, the Pharisees in this text basically, in essence, rejected the entirety of their own history. They rejected the truth of their own scriptures in favor of their arrogant, hard-hearted pride. They deliberately and wickedly chose such a path. Another well-respected New Testament scholar, William Hendrickson, described it like this, quote, Among the Pharisees here described, genuine sorrow for sin is totally lacking. For penitence, they substitute hardening. For confession, plotting. Thus, by means of their own criminal and completely inexcusable callousness, they are dooming themselves. 
Their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For a thief and adulterer and a murderer, there is hope. The message of gospel, the gospel may cause him to cry out, O oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But when a man has become so hardened so that he makes, made up his mind not to pay attention to the promptings of the Spirit, not even to listen to his pleading and warning voice, he has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. He has sinned the sin that leads unto death. 1 John 5.16, there is a sin that leads unto death. And finally, Daniel Doriani, the New Testament professor and pastor, described the way in which somebody might commit or might get close to committing the sins spoken of in the text today. He said this, quote, Blasphemy against the Spirit is the sober, clear-minded, deliberate rejection of Jesus as a very agent of evil, despite full knowledge of his work and in the face of the Spirit's testimony to him. This blasphemer has heard the gospel proclaimed with clarity and power. He has watched Christians live good good lives, yet he hates Jesus and Christianity and views it as wickedness and deceit. He hears, understands, and despises. We see why this sin is unpardonable. How can one turn to Christ and be saved when he has seen all the evidence and rejected it as a terrible evil? So whether you can actually commit this sin today is still up for grabs. But know this. In all of these, you notice the common theme is deliberate, willful rejection, which means that when you confess your sins and you turn to Jesus in faith, you will be forgiven of every and any sin you've ever committed. If you truly come to Jesus in faith, the only sin that will not be forgiven you is your rejection of and rebellion against Jesus unto death. If you refuse Jesus and you die in that state, you are lost. And for as long as you live and as long as you breathe, there is a chance for you to take hold of eternal life. Salvation is out there for you to grab onto. Jesus, his arms are open wide, ready to receive you. He loves to forgive sinners who cry out to him in faith. But if you choose to refuse this offer, if you die in that state of unforgiveness, your soul will be lost forever. You will forever endure the just wrath and torment of the Lord himself upon you for your sins. If you know the truth, Hebrews 10.26 says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, after knowing the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. For those of you this morning who truly do believe, who trust Christ, you are not guilty So get that out of your mind. You are not guilty of committing any unpardonable or unforgivable sin. You are forgiven by the Lord. You are a child of Jesus Christ. You cannot commit this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. No one who has the Spirit of God can say, Jesus, be accursed. Take comfort in the forgiveness that's yours 
by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. But you, however, who are here this morning or who are watching online, who refuse at this moment to believe, who reject the offer of Christ held out to you this morning to turn to Him and be saved, to get off the road that leads to death, listen to the warning voice of the Spirit. Do not remain in the sin that leads to eternal death, but instead turn to Christ and be saved. And if you confess your sins, our God is good and faithful to forgive those sins. That's the offer held out to all of you this morning, to his glory. Father, we thank you and we praise you for this message that Christ spoke. And I ask for each and every one of us in here that none of us would have a heart that is hardened to you. That none of us would hear the call of Jesus to repent and believe and reject that call and remain on the road to death. I pray that your spirit would just be battering down the doors of hearts that haven't given themselves over to you. And on the same token, I pray that your spirit would be comforting hearts that have given themselves over to you that you are an abundantly merciful and gracious God and we are the joyful recipients of that mercy and of that grace. All praise to you, all glory to you, all honor to you. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.